Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star and then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Crystal, for um, you know for welcoming everyone to the call. And I too would like to welcome everyone to today's workshop: diverse populations living with non-small cell lung cancer. And today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and Longevity Foundation, and I really want to thank them. This partnership is really very important, um, and you'll be hearing more about them um, as we move along in the program. Uh, today's program is supported by an educational grant from Daiichi Sanko, Inc. and the Diana Napoli Fund, and I really want to thank them for their support of the program today. Now, we have over 157 participants on the call today. You come from all of the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. We also have some international participants from France, Canada, and the United Kingdom, so it's a bit of a global call as well. And we're delighted that you've all chosen to spend this next hour with us. Now, before we move into introducing our first speaker, I just have a few questions I'd like to ask all of you to start. And for those of you who are listening, uh, who are live streaming the call, you'll be able to answer these questions. Um, and on a scale of one to five, with one the highest rating and five the lowest rating, please select your rating. I understand the importance of non-small cell lung cancer screening and treatment equity for diverse populations. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand the concerns about the safety of clinical trials for diverse population, non-small cell lung cancer patients, their loved ones, and caregivers. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand the role of access to chemotherapy, radiation oncology, targeted cancer therapies, and new treatment approaches for diverse population, non-small cell lung cancer patients, their loved ones, and caregivers. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand the significance of managing treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, pain, and quality of life concerns for diverse population, non-small cell lung cancer patients, their loved ones, and caregivers. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And this will be the last question. Um, Again, for those live streaming, I understand the significance of clinical trial participation for diverse population, non-small cell lung cancer patients. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. So 
So I want to thank everybody for participating in these questions. It really helps us to get a better understanding of what you know about this topic um, before the program starts. Um, it'll help us in planning future programs as well to make them most relevant to meet your needs. And now, um, it's my pleasure to start introducing our first speakers. And our first speaker is Dr. Richard Grawler. Dr. Grawler is Professor of Medicine, Albert Einstein College of Medicine, Jacoby Medical Center. And Dr. Grawler will be addressing why non-small cell lung cancer screening and treatment equity have never been more important for people living with lung cancer, communicating with diverse population lung cancer patients and their loved ones about lung cancer treatment, and key questions to ask your healthcare team. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Grawa. Well, hello, and thank you, Carolyn. Welcome to, to all. I am uh, Dr. Richard Grawa. I'm a medical oncologist at the Albert Einstein Cancer Center in New York. I have the pleasure of starting off this program, which will discuss many aspects of lung cancer and of diverse populations. We are fortunate to have a very knowledgeable and helpful panel on the call today, and I look forward to their presentations. I'll introduce the problem of lung cancer as we see it today, and my colleagues will focus more on issues of diversity and this cancer. Of course, in that this program is being presented in June of 2021, all of us are aware of the greater or lesser presence of COVID-19 depending on our locations and communities. I really cannot overemphasize the crucial importance of vaccination with the life-threatening vaccines that are now available, especially in people with lung cancer and in their nearby caregivers. Here we understand that diversity also has an impact, but few health considerations are as important as vaccination. As an example, you may be aware that it's estimated that more than 95% of doctors gratefully receive vaccination as soon as it was possible for them. Just a few decades ago, lung cancer was seen as a malignancy that affected mainly men, and other than a smoking history and exposure to some toxins such as asbestos, few other factors were seen to be of significance. <clears throat> Well, in fact, today, lung cancer occurs in just about the same number of women as men. Great changes in our understanding of lung cancer and of major illnesses in general have rapidly occurred. We know now that many genetic, lifestyle, gender, ethnic, and environmental factors have an impact on the risk of lung cancer, the type of lung cancer, preventive approaches, and even treatment of this very common and difficult malignancy. Major treatment advances are closely related to this enhanced understanding and will be discussed by our fine panel. It remains true that tobacco exposure, primarily first-hand smoking, is responsible for 80 to 90% of lung cancer. Smoking avoidance, that is preventing smoking or cessation, is a key strategy. But since lung cancer is so common worldwide, even 10 to 20% of cases account for a very large number of people. Dr. Shum will refer more to a new term called precision medicine, which focuses on factors affecting a particular individual's lung cancer and may strongly guide treatment and screening or prevention. This has helped us find very specific and different treatments, especially among non-smokers with lung cancer. In all aspects of medicine, lower income and lower educational levels have great impacts on health, access to medical care, and outcomes of this care. 
This is particularly true for heart disease, emphysema, and cancer. Thus, for equity of care and for improved health in all our populations, it's important to recognize where these risks are greatest and to attempt to overcome barriers to care. We've learned recently that screening higher-risk individuals can save lives not just for breast cancer but for lung cancer as well. Something as simple as a painless annual low-dose rapid CT scan in smokers can save lives and allow earlier, simpler treatment. Dr. Shum may also discuss the potential of screening some particular risk groups beyond those with the smoking history. Unfortunately, there's been rather low usage of this effective screening tool among many groups of Americans and with even lower uptake in our minority populations. When lung cancer is detected in early stages, it's highly curable, especially by surgery and even by radiation therapy in some people. Newer techniques in both surgery and radiation therapy have allowed for much easier treatment. The surgery is often able to be performed by using a scope rather than requiring a large incision. This is called that surgery, and this surgical approach is available to all major medical centers and often has a rather short recovery period for many patients. Newer radiotherapy techniques can greatly reduce the number of treatments needed for this modern method in the appropriate patient. Clear improvements in treating patients with more advanced lung cancer are now widely available thanks to a better understanding of lung cancer and how to treat diverse individuals. We now refer to treatment that affects the whole body as systemic treatment because it may use just pills and what are called molecular therapies guided by individual genetically determined factors in the appropriate individuals, or new immune therapy, or immune therapy with chemotherapy. All of these are guided by individual factors and often by genetic analysis specific to the individual and can vary in diverse groups of patients. Additionally, marked improvements in preventing side effects of all these treatments have occurred, which can have a great effect on quality of life and making treatment more compatible for many patients and their families. Even these quality of life approaches can differ by specific patient factors. Great challenges continue in making the best prevention, screening, and treatment methods easily accessible and available to all. As treatment has gotten more sophisticated and individualized, your treatment team, including your doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and social workers, can help make this easier and clearer for each patient and family. Your team can clearly outline how your own individual factors have helped to identify recommended treatment for you, and your team will welcome your questions. My colleagues will focus on some of the prominent areas that are important for women and men with lung cancer to be aware of with the great diversity of our populations and issues affecting barriers to care. I'll now turn the program back to Carolyn Messner and look forward to the presentations by my colleagues. Carolyn? Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Grala. That was a, a really an outstanding uh, introduction to this call, really setting the talk context for today's program. Um, thank you so much for doing that. I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Elaine Shum, and Dr. Shum is Assistant Professor, Hematology and Medical Oncology, Laura and Isaac Palmetto Cancer Center, NYU Langone Health, 
And Dr. Sham will be addressing the role of chemotherapy, radiation oncology, and targeted cancer treatments, new treatment approaches, what is precision medicine, and how does precision medicine inform treatment decisions, and managing treatment side effects, symptoms, and pain. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Shum. Thank you so much, Carolyn. Again, my name is uh, Dr. Elaine Shum, and I'm a thoracic medical oncologist at NYU. I'm also privileged to also treat lung cancer patients at Bellevue Hospital Center in New York City, which is the oldest public hospital in the United States, and serves a pre predominantly minority population, often without medical health insurance. I feel lucky to say that despite this, we are able to offer patients the latest advancements in treatment, as well as offering clinical trials. Thank you to Dr. Grala for providing a great background on lung cancer, and I've been tasked to give an overview on the specifics of treatment. I'll be speaking primarily about non-small cell lung cancer treatments. I want to give a brief overview on the categories of systemic treatments that we have available. Chemotherapy has been used for decades in the treatment of cancer and remains as part of the treatment plans for many patients. It primarily works by affecting the way a cancer cell proliferates or grows, but these mechanisms for growth can also be seen in normal cells, which is why chemotherapy gets the bad reputation of having unpleasant side effects. That said, we have had many advancements and improvements in how we approach patients with these side effects and are much better at trying to control or prevent them from ha happening. In just the last few years, the use of immunotherapy drugs have really changed the way we approach many different cancers and not just lung cancer. The way I like to explain how immunotherapy treats cancer is that it works to empower a patient's immune system. The immune system serves your body to recognize things that are foreign or not supposed to be in your body, such as a cold or other illness. In a similar fashion, one would think it should recognize that a cancer cell is foreign. However, we know that cancer cells can be smart and they found a way to hide from one's immune system. By giving a patient immunotherapy, it can potentially unhide or unmask the cancer cell. So now your immune system can recognize it and try to rid it from your body. Lastly, there are several targeted therapy drugs that are available, and this is where we often refer to the concept of precision medicine. Precision medicine can sometimes be called personalized medicine, which is approaching treatment not in a one-size-fits-all approach, but tailoring treatment to a subgroup or even an individual's particular tumor characteristics. In lung cancer, this concept is particularly important and exciting, given the identification of various molecular mutations or driver mutations that are associated with one's lung cancer, for which there are drugs that can target these mutations. These mutations are more commonly seen in lung adenocarcinomas. Just to name some of the more common alterations that are known, there's EGFR, ALK, ROS1, RET, BRAF, MET exon 14 skipping alterations, and many others. Recently, another molecular target called KRAS-G12C that had been considered undruggable for years just had a drug called Sotorasib approved for it within the last month. Interestingly, many of these alterations are seen in more commonly in those who are non-smokers and also can be seen in higher incidences in particular ethnic groups. For example, EGFR mutations are reported in the general population at around 15 to 20% of cases. In Asian populations, however, this incidence can be around 40%. I'll talk a little bit more about this population later. As previously mentioned, the staging of one's lung cancer is important in determining what type of treatment modalities are used. 
However, I will say that there have been many new advancements in just the last year regarding the use of different treatment modalities by stage. For patients with early stage lung cancers, which includes stages 2, 3, and selected stage 1B that can undergo surgery or are considered resectable, they may receive chemotherapy before or after surgery. Chemotherapy after surgery is referred to as adjuvant therapy. In just the last year, we have seen advancements to further decrease the risk of lung cancer recurrence with the use of targeted therapy after surgery, or adjuvant therapy, specifically in EGFR-mutated patients with a drug called osimertinib. Ongoing studies are being conducted to explore adjuvant targeted therapy for other driver mutations. Within just this past month, data was presented about using immunotherapy after surgical resection and adjuvant chemotherapy in selected patients. It's not yet been FDA approved, but we are excited to see what happens in this space in the months to come. In addition, in just the past few months, exciting data about the use of immunotherapy in combination with chemotherapy before surgery, or neoadjuvant therapy, may also change the way we approach early stage lung cancers. As you can see, so much is happening in this field, which is truly great for patients. In patients with metastatic disease, or disease that traditionally is considered to have spread to both lungs or outside of the lungs, the treatment paradigm has also changed greatly in just the last few years with immunotherapy and more targeted therapy drugs being approved. In just 2020, more than five new drugs for lung cancer were approved, which is amazing. As a result, some patients may not require chemotherapy as their first-line treatment. This is where that concept of precision medicine comes in again as we use biomarkers or particular characteristics of a tumor to help us decide what treatments might be most effective to use. The common bio biomarker that should be tested for all non-small cell lung cancer patients is PDL1, as well as comprehensive testing for lung adenocarcinomas to potentially detect those driver mutations I previously mentioned. This testing can be done in various ways, but one of the more extensive ways is through next-generation sequencing of the tumor, and nowadays can also sometimes be detected through the blood. I will acknowledge that there can be barriers to this testing, although most insurance companies should cover for this type of testing for metastatic lung adenocarcinomas, and I do encourage patients to also ask their physicians about this type of testing as well. With all these new treatments and options, I also encourage patients to consider clinical trials. We would not have had all these drug approvals if not for our patients who have enrolled on a clinical trial. And there are trials available for many indications, and the goal for many is to improve on what we consider standard of care. I know Dr. Duma will be speaking more about this, but I just want to underline the fact that in particular, there are lower numbers of minority patients who enroll on clinical trials, and I do encourage increased minority representation to help advance our whole understanding of this disease and our treatments. For all these treatments, there unfortunately can be side effects, but as I mentioned earlier, we have gotten much, much better in addressing and trying to prevent many of them. Many institutions often have a supportive oncology or palliative care team that work with oncologists to aid patients with either side effects of their treatment or symptoms of their disease itself, whether it's pain, nausea, vomiting, decreased appetite, or even the psychosocial aspects of confronting their disease. I do encourage patients to engage with this team if available, as I believe a multidisciplinary approach has many benefits. Returning back to Asian populations and lung cancer, as mentioned, a large majority of Asian patients are found to have EGFR mutations. I want to highlight a research study that I am conducting at NYU. 
As Dr. Grala mentioned, lung cancer screening can save lives and potentially detect lung cancer at earlier stages. As I do consider Asian women non-smokers as a potential high-risk population for developing lung cancer, I'm currently conducting a study to offer free, low-dose CT scans of the chest to this population. Lung cancer screening for all non-smoking patients is not yet incorporated into the guidelines, but with further research in this area, perhaps this can one day change. With that, I'll turn the program back to Carolyn and look forward to hearing your questions later. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Shum. That was outstanding, and, and really, um, you really covered very um, eloquently all the different treatments for, um, for lung cancer and for all the populations. So thank you so much. Excellent. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you very much. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Narjust Aduma. And, um, and Dr. Duma um, is Assistant Professor of Medicine, Thoracic Oncology, University of Wisconsin Carbone Cancer Center. And Dr. Duma will be addressing concerns about safety of clinical trials for diverse population lung cancer patients, the meaning of informed consent in clinical trials, and outreach approaches for diverse population lung cancer patients. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Duma. One, um, it is my true honor to be here. As I mentioned, uh, as at the University of Wisconsin, and I'm transitioning to Dana Farber as the Associate Director of the Cancer Care Equity Program. Um, before we talk about unique needs of diverse population, it's important to mention that diversity goes beyond race and ethnicity. We have patients with different backgrounds that um, often are not included in clinical trials. This includes members of the LGBTQ community, Patients in which language, English is not the first language or do not feel comfortable getting health care um, only by English and they need a translator. Also, we have patients in rural areas and underserved areas in the United States. Um, and other different characteristics that kind of leave the norm. Um, we have three sections to talk, but I want to hope to make this interactive as a phone call we allow to do it. So what are the concerns about safety? Well, some of the concerns about safety is that when I interact with patients, the fear is that I will get a placebo instead of treatment. And it's important to mention that all cancer clinical trials, it is for a patient's disease instead of understanding other aspects of care, the majority of the therapeutic clinical trials include active treatment for cancer. Easy, the patient needs the treatment. There are some scenarios in which some patients may receive newer treatments um, after they have completed all cancer treatments. But the majority of the cancer clinical trials include an active treatment for the cancer. And this is for this is a hundred almost a hundred percent for patients that have metastatic disease in which the therapy will help with the symptoms and prolong life potentially. So that's one of the fears. The other concern is that the majority of the drugs that we use currently have been tested in a majority white male population. I specialize in women with lung cancer. And it is often that some of the trials from the late 90s and early 2000s included a majority of men. And as we know for data, women and men, we are equal but different, tolerate therapy different. So we are learning about some of the adverse events that may be more common in women than men, 
or may be reported differently by women versus men. Um, so there's a concern that we don't have a data that represents patients, as the majority of the data was obtained for a very homogeneous population. So we have met with a patient like me, a Latina woman, and most of the data that I'm using and extrapolating from uh, a population that didn't know include patients that were Hispanic and women, for example. But it is important to understand that these clinical trials had recruited hundreds of patients, and we use the best data to date. But the goal of this call, besides bringing this subject to light, is that we understand the importance of having everyone in a clinical trial. One, because it's the ethical thing to do. Many clinical trials offer opportunities to get a drug sooner than they're approved, they're, or a combination. So in some cases, a clinical trial may be the best treatment option, and because somebody has a different background, they should also be given the same opportunities of participating in clinical trials. So my papers for 2018 and 2019 show that despite the conversation about improving the recruitment of minority or underrepresented groups in clinical trials, we're still doing very poorly, particularly with African-Americans and Hispanics. We have improved the recruitment of Asians over time, but we still have a lot of room for improvement, and it's important that we get the data that's appropriate. So as we move along in the subject, we're going to talk about informed consent. And informed consent is this legal document that allows a two-way communication between the patient and the physician about a clinical trial, about a treatment, or about a procedure. If a patient is going to get surgery, informed consent is obtained. But I want to make sure that we talk about what it is the true informed consent. It is not a piece of paper that you sign rushing trying to get treatment. It needs to be a two-way communication. And in some scenarios, family can come and be present during the discussions because it's important that there is information about potential treatment. So all informed consents should include all the treatment options that are available and also the discussion about not doing anything. Or more than not doing anything is doing best supportive care, which means we support the patient through the disease without chemotherapy, without surgery or radiation, but we offer support for symptoms for pain. And that option should be discussed in the informed consent instead of just rushing to a piece of paper. I often get asked for patients, do I need to sign immediately? Well, the truth is that no, you don't have to sign the informed consent the same day that your doctor has presented the clinical trial to you or the treatment. Uh, for some of my patients, I allow them to go home, discuss with their family, go over the documents. Some of these informed consents for clinical trials can be 20 pages long. And it's important that the patient goes over the informed consent with the doctor, with the research team, and also on their own time if possible. It's important to know that sometimes there are restrictions about time. You see the patient has the patient or the person living with cancer has um, a lot of pain and it really needs treatment. But doesn't have to sign, be signed immediately. 
And final, the final point about the informed consent I wanted to touch is about language. More and more clinical trials have consent in different languages, Spanish being the most common one. Not all clinical trials do, but as a group of, as a group and as a cooperative group and as a group of my collaborators, we're advocating for budget to include a translation of the consent. Because I always try to explain how hard it would be to have a translator go over a 20-page document during one encounter, right? And sometimes if the patient doesn't speak English and takes the consent home, the translation may not be accurate and, and the family member may not provide all the information. So if you don't speak English or you don't feel comfortable making medical decisions in English, you can ask your teen to see if the consent is available in another language. And finally, in the last few minutes, we're going to talk about outreach. It is important that we leave the ivory tower and we go to our communities. I'm an academic center. I'm joining another academic center. And many of the clinical trials are in these big, large academic centers. It is important to know that there are historical events for which minority populations may not trust these institutions. There are facts, things that happened in the past that may push some of our patients away from these big hospitals. So it is our duty to bring the clinical trials to the patient, to go to community centers, to rural hospitals, in which it would be possible. Because it's very expensive to ask a patient that lives two hours when I was in Wisconsin from the cancer center to come every week. There is gas, there is time of work. So. Another thing that we continue to work is to get to know the community, get to know the leaders and their needs. Every population has different needs when considered a clinical trial. It is very unfair to try to create an outreach that fits all. Their interventions are faith-based. Their interventions called promotoras, which are healthcare educators, are very commonly used with the Hispanic community. So we are learning on how is the best way to reach the community. But what is important is that we develop long-lasting relationships and not come and get from the communities what we need as investigators and physicians. We need to remain there. We need to work with the community. And my final thought is that everyone has a level of privilege. We all do. I have privilege as a doctor. Uh, somebody has an internet is a privilege. So we can use our individual privilege to create equity um, through all the spectrum of cancer care, not only in lung cancer. Um, I hope this covers the subject, um, and thank you for the invitation to be here today. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Duma. That was outstanding. And really, you really have set just a wonderful context for our, our whole program today. So thank you so much. And I appreciate that very much. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. Um, so thank you um, so much. And our next speaker is Dr. Guadalupe Palos. Dr. Palos is actually her own healthcare team. She's both been a nurse, a social worker, and a doctor of public health. She's clinical protocol administrative, administration manager, <clears throat> Office of Cancer Survivorship, um, the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Dr. Palos will be addressing adherence or taking your treatment on schedule, follow appointments and caregiver support, 
and guidelines to prepare for telehealth telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, and discussion of open notes. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Palos. Thank you, Dr. Bessner, for the uh, invitation and that kind introduction. It's wonderful to be part of this very knowledgeable panel and to be speaking to such a large and diverse uh, population. It was interesting that we have um, our European cousins with us today, and um, we appreciate that because that also lends to the topic of diversity. As the previous speakers discussed, patients and their families face challenges in following schedules when dealing with such a complex disease. And this disease often requires different types of medication to manage symptoms such as pain or to treat the disease itself. The burden of following a medication schedule significantly increases when the patients include other medications to manage chronic conditions such as hypertension or diabetes. Sadly, many of these chronic conditions also require complex treatment regimens, which can include pharmacological and non-pharmacological approaches, and then which may lead to a complex and different types of side effects. So in the next few moments, what I've been asked to discuss is taking your treatment on schedule or referred to as adherence, how to manage follow-up appointments with caregiver support, to present some, and then to present some guidelines on how to prepare for virtual appointments or telemedicine. I'll begin with adherence. Adherence has been defined as the extent to which a person's behavior, such as taking medication, following diets, or other lifestyle changes, such as Dr. Grala mentioned about uh, with tobacco, with that is tobacco cessation programs, coincide many times with clinical prescriptions. Adherence is to Prescribed medication is a process which is very complex because there's a series of different decisions to make and different behaviors to implement. The whole process of adherence really can be broken into like three groups or three uh, steps. The first one is called initiation, where the healthcare providers prescribe the medication and communicate its purpose and how to use it to the patient and the family, and then the patients have to fulfill the prescription. But as we heard from our previous speaker, Dr. Duma, that sometimes that can be very challenging if equity is not there and people are not able to even fill the prescription. The second step is implementation. The patient must then take the medication according to the directions. That, again, can have some issues associated such as um, language preferences that, you know, they get the information in the language that they could understand, or even literacy. Can people read the instructions? Or even age. Is the printing so small that some of us can't read that, that printing or the instructions that are sometimes placed on, on um, prescriptions? And the last stage would be discontinuation, which is to, you know, uh, continue it as a medication as long as you can without premature termination. And in the past two years, or really over the last years, two major trends have been found to impact patient adherence. One is uh, the increasing emphasis on self-management. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. And then the other is the change in demographics and the profile of our nation. So with, uh, there's been increasing emphasis on self-management of chronic conditions. And that has included then, or we've seen a similar trend where then 
family responsibility for the coordination and the implementation of different aspects of the disease has also increased, which places sometimes a burden on the family and um, also on the patient. Depending on the condition, self-care instructions can range from being relatively simple, such as taking a medication daily for preventive purposes, to exceedingly complex purposes, such as taking multiple uh, medications, monitoring the symptoms, communicating with the healthcare providers about the symptoms, and then making lifestyle changes, such as in diet, exercise, and sleep. So that in itself causes a, a, a burden on the patients and, and the family trying to keep up with all those, especially if it's the latter with the complexity. So then along with the shift towards self-management of chronic health condition, there's been a shift in the demographic composition of the United States. We are definitely becoming increasingly diverse. The cultural diversity of our communities is also affecting by, affected by the number of first-generation immigrants. Approximately 17% of the U.S. population is expected to be foreign-born by the year 2040. And then similar projections show that more than one quarter of the population will be foreign-born by, again, 2031. So we see, again, that there's trends. And so healthcare providers have to be increasingly mindful of how their recommendation for disease manages, management is going to complement or be synergistic with the needs and beliefs of the demographic groups they serve. So there's some changes that need to be placed on the patient and the family, as well as on the healthcare provider, which leads to definitely a team approach. It's interesting, um, research has shown that individuals' beliefs regarding the need of a medication and the level of concern about taking daily medications differ among cultural groups. This effect has been seen in different uh, conditions, including cancer. Beliefs about disease, approaches to self-management, and medications can be influenced by history, cultural um, f factors, uh, family experience, and individual preferences, and they can involve complexities beyond the risks and benefits that are typically discussed along the patient encounter. So these may not be issues that come up during that patient-provider uh, discussion or the meetings that come up. There's a, one thing I really want to mention that I've seen quite a bit in the patients that I've worked with is the use of complementary and alternative medicine, and that refers to health approaches that can be used together or uh, in conjunction with um, our prescribed medications. A number of studies have evaluated CAM use and its relation to adherence um, with, and have come up with mixed results. For example, in one study, uh, complementary and alternative medicine was regarded, was regarded as being more similar to cultural traditions in groups such as Hispanics and our Vietnamese uh, partners than, in, than that that was provided by medical practitioners. So in communities with less medication access, integrating or using CAM more is more common. So it's important to talk about this with your providers and for the providers to ask um, our patients, are you using any type of over-the-counter or traditional types of remedies? Um, let's talk about them because uh, we, we can discuss whether or not you need to continue them, are they helpful or not. But it's also up to the patient and the family to bring that subject up if it's not brought up during the discussion. 
And that there's a number of other factors that we don't have to talk, time to talk about, but it would be, again, financial barriers, uh, the caregiver's concerns about the side effects, the patient often may be willing to take the medication, but the caregivers are concerned about the impact it may have on that. And then so the bottom line with all of this is that it's important to have shared decision-making between the patients and the providers and to let the patient become an active member of the healthcare team. It's also important to look at you know, the, the prescribed schedule and ask if it's going to interfere with different things in the patient's schedule. For example, are there morning uh, prayers that are going to interfere with the timing of a prescribed medication? So that will help us then in trying to optimize the, um, the use of the medication the way it's supposed to be. So this is very, again, a brief overview. Now, one of the other major factors that contribute to staying on track with a treatment plan are the follow-up appointments required to manage this disease. However, keeping up with appointments can prove quite daunting, especially if one person is trying to keep up with everything. So it is of the utmost importance that a cancer patient have a network of supporters during the journey. Supporters do not always have to be family members. Your support network can be uh, friends, colleagues, faith-based members, family members, and the family members don't always have to be from your immediate or nuclear family. Your extended family members can also be involved. You can, what I would suggest just to begin with is sit down in a quiet place and make a list of those individuals that can be in your network. Just brainstorm and make a list of anyone you know that you think would be helpful in any type of, of uh, task you may have. Next, make a list of all the tasks involved in coordinating and implementing follow-up appointments, and even during hospitalizations if those are going to be needed. So things would be like transportation, you know, who can be the calendar keeper, who can be the pharmacy runner, the backup person, who can go with you to the appointments and stay with you during the appointment to take notes, to collect business cards, or can be the tech support to pull out information from the patient portal because we have seen lately that patient portals are an essential way to communicate with patients. So other things would be like who can help with your pet, like pet sitting or walking, who can keep an eye on your home, and just as important is who can be your listener, your prayer partner, or just sit quietly with you. One of the things I've observed in practice is that people like to help when asked. However, many times patients are uncomfortable with asking, with asking and supporters may not know how to ask. So here's a few tips that may help build a support network for follow-up appointments. If someone offers to help, do not hesitate. Say yes. Then give them a choice of which support role they fit best. You may even get some help to help you make the, a list of your network partners, a schedule for them, or maybe even to call folks to remind them of their assignments. You can help your network buddies by having a list of providers and their contact information. It's also important to keep, keep a list with all your usernames and passwords for emergencies, just in case, and then also to let them know if there are any advanced directive papers you may have. And ask them also to maintain mass guidelines because the immune status of our cancer patients is sometimes compromised, so it's helpful to have that in place. Remember, even as we enter post-COVID times, people are responsive when being asked to help. So now I'd like to just quickly move on to a new trend that has involved uh, since the beginning of the pandemic, and that's telehealth or telemedicine appointments. So telemedicine appointments have become more convenient uh, during this COVID crisis. 
So what is telehealth medicine? Well, it's healthcare via the telephone, a computer, email, and other technologies. Uh, it, again, as a patient, you can see your provider in this manner instead of an in-person visit. And there's different ways to take advantage of your telehealth appointments. So I'm going to go over a few tips for you. So first of all, choose your, tech, your, your technology. What is it that you prefer to use? A tablet, a computer, uh, the smartphone, whatever it is, just decide that that's the way you, you're going to use and try to become um, very familiar with how to use it. Have someone do tutorials for you, but choose your technology. You have it everything set up before your appointment. It's just very crazy to try to be getting the smartphone to do what you wanted to, logging into your computer, and then many of us forget our passwords, so we have to go look for that. So set up prior to your appointment. Choose a quiet, private place. It's also helpful to prepare your medical history, so that way you can go over any pre-existing conditions. The appointment may be with your oncologist, but they're also interested in knowing about you know, your diabetes or your hypertension or about your arthritis. So have information about that. So you need to prepare your paperwork ahead of time. Um, the other thing that, I, that we've been seeing a lot is that we'll ask the patients to take their own vital signs. So many, you can take your temperature, you can take your blood pressure, you can write those down, and that way you can have them readily available so you can communicate that to your provider. It's also important to be prepared for co-pays. You may get a call after you have your call with your provider, and they may ask you, you know, maybe the office may be um, asking you to pay for, um, to make that co-payment over the phone. Important also is to write down your questions ahead of time. Go over your treatment plan. It's always good to just remind, you know, have them remind you, okay, you know, kind of wrap up at the summary. So this is what you'd like me to do, or this is when, you know, we have my next follow-up appointment. So it's just nice to have that summary. And don't forget, again, to set up those follow-up appointments. Sometimes we forget that. So there's other kinds of things. There may be a need for interpreters. Um, and again, patients may not feel at ease with the use of uh, technology or techn technical kinds of, of uh, devices. So we have to be patient with each other when we're trying to do all of this because we know telemedicine has permanently changed healthcare and is probably going to be used more often than not. So finally, I just want to remind yourself remind you that you need to maintain a balance. Plan ahead and prioritize depending on your situation and medications. My colleagues and I look forward to hearing from you and sharing any tips about participate about keeping up with your schedule of medication or participating in clinical trials. Thank you for allowing me to share these thoughts with you. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Palos. That was really extraordinary and just a wonderful uh, review of these topics. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, and you always bring something very special to these programs. So thank you so much. And our next speaker is Ms. Diana Bearden, and Ms. Bearden is oncology dietitian, Michael E. DeBakey, VA Medical Center. And she'll be discussing nutrition and hydration concerns and tips as a dietitian. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Bearden. Thank you so much, Carolyn. I'm excited to be part of today's presentation addressing nutrition, nutrition and hydration concerns. 
Nutrition and hydration are essential in your tolerance to treatment and provide you the energy to do the things that you enjoy. During your treatment, um, your diet might be modified just based on your unique needs. Sometimes side effects can have a role um, in how your diet needs to be modified, and sometimes it's your treatment. So some of the potential side effects that you may include include dry mouth, possibly difficulty swallowing, some changes in taste, a decrease in appetite, and fatigue. During your course of treatment, it's so important that you connect with all members of your healthcare team. A dietitian is a member of your healthcare team and can help you with modifying your diet based on your unique needs. Sometimes um, patients come in with the idea that they have some weight to lose, that it's not a big deal if they drop a little bit of weight, when in actuality it can be very significant and can impact your overall treatment plan. So if you notice a change in your tolerance to diet, if you notice a change in your weight, please ask to speak with your dietitian. She, she or he can help with um, making your diet needs um, known and um, clearly understood to what you need to be doing at that time. Sometimes when we lose weight, um, without cancer in the picture, it doesn't really seem like a big deal. But when we're losing weight while we're receiving cancer treatment, muscle is usually what we lose first. And the thing about muscle is it gives us the energy and endurance to do so much that we enjoy. And it's also part of our daily functions, such as breathing, swallowing, talking, and mobility. So during your, cre- your treatment plan, um, please just be aware of any changes that you experience. Take notes if need be. Have somebody um, who is with you also be aware of what's going on so they can also relay the information to the healthcare professional in the event you're not feeling well. There are medications to assist with side effects, and talking with your healthcare team to understand those is also really important. If you are experiencing side effects, let the team know as soon as possible. Oftentimes, they can nip it in the bud and help um, rather than you struggle and um, have challenges longer than you would need to. Dehydration is oftentimes something that we overlook, um, but dehydration can happen, especially if you're not eating very well. Fluid is anything that's liquid at room temperature, such as water, milk, and sports drinks. And in general, most people need about 80 ounces of fluid a day. In closing, there are several members of the healthcare team dedicated to your care. Please reach out to them and let them know what your needs are and what you're struggling with. Thank you for allowing me to be part of today's workshop. I'll now pass the line back over to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Mr. And that was really extra excellent and, and thank you. And it's wonderful of the dietitian, such an important part of the healthcare team. Thank you. And um I just want to kind of talk a little bit about the Longevity Foundation. Um there um they um have a number of free programs and services that would be very helpful to you and you can access them by calling them at the Lung Cancer Helpline at eight four four three six oh five Eight six four, or visiting the website at www.longevity.org. It's just a wonderful go-to organization for um, any concerns you may have. In addition to going to your healthcare team, of course, it's a very credible organization to to go to for additional information that you may have in terms of of, of lung cancer questions or concerns. Um, and 
um, said that I just wanted to kind of acknowledge that that's a resource for all of you. And I should say at the end of today's program, or actually tomorrow, you'll be receiving um, a Survey Monkey evaluation. But in that evaluation, you'll also have some links to other things that we think would be important for you to have, because we do know that in addition to going to your healthcare team, that you also, uh, for your questions and concerns, that you also may wish to have other credible resources, which means that their website is up-to-date in terms of this year, even this month to some extent, so that you're getting the most up-to-date information. That's really very important. And I'm just going to say a few words about cancer care. I'm Carolyn Mester. I'm Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. And I just want to um, say a few things about our free programs and services um, that we offer. Now, we offer services to all cancers, all ages, um, and all relationships in terms of whether, whether one is a person living with uh, lung cancer or any type of cancer, a caregiver, a young adult, older adult middle-aged adult to cover all ages. And the services are, uh, many people call us on our HOPE line, which is an 800 number, and um, they get to speak. Our staff is primarily oncology social workers, so we have about 35 oncology social workers who answer the phone when you call for help and assistance. And in addition to that, um, we also um, offer practical and financial assistance, and we have a co-payment assistance program that also provides significant financial assistance with the cost of some of the drugs that you may be taking. Um, in addition to that, we do offer online support groups, um, and we do offer about 75 of these type of workshops per year, and we also have a number of publications, which so just gives you a quick sketch of some of our services and programs. Now, before we um, go on to the Q&A, I just have a few uh, final questions to ask all of you who are on the call today, so I'd like you to kind of um, join me and uh, those of you who are live streaming the program can address these questions. And so um, the first question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the importance of non-small cell lung cancer screening and treatment equity for diverse populations. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the safety of clinical trials for diverse population, non-small cell lung cancer patients. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the importance of access to chemotherapy, radiation oncology, targeted cancer therapies, and new treatment approaches for diverse population non-small cell lung cancer patients. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now I just have two questions left. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of how to work with the healthcare team to utilize their suggestions and tips on how to manage treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, pain, and quality of life concerns of diverse population non-small cell lung cancer patients. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating.
and this will be the last question, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the importance of clinical trial participation for diverse population non-small cell lung cancer patients. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. So I want to thank you all for your participation in these questions. And now I'm going to ask Crystal to bring all of our speakers on board and also to explain to all of you how to queue up and ask questions. Um, Crystal? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star and then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, please press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. So this is a question um, for uh, to start with Dr. Grawler. What is being done to broaden eligibility for lung cancer screening? Well, I think that uh, a lot of things have been done. One is it's very widely available. So there are uh, both from major uh, hospital centers to commercial uh, radiology imaging centers. It's it's extremely widely available. And uh, these days, most uh, primary care physicians are aware of the benefits, uh, so it is always worthwhile to ask your primary care physician. But I think you can find uh, um, uh, screening uh, available at any um, uh, uh, in any community, um, uh, given that you live near where medical uh, facilities are available. Now, let's remember that when you get the screening CT scan, first of all, right now, as Dr. Shum referred to, looking at different groups other than people with a longer smoking history is is still under investigation. But for those with a longer smoking history, um, it is really quite easy to get and is covered by almost every insurance that I'm aware of. And um, it is a very low-dose CT scan, so there's very little radiation involved, and it takes really just minutes to get, and there's no injection as well. But it's very widely available, but don't uh, hesitate to uh, talk to your primary care physician about it. Thank you so much. And a question for Dr. Dumar. What are some future lung cancer strategies that address equity implementation issues? Hi, thank you for the question. Um, there, are no, there is no one strategy, I would say, we fix all problems that we currently have. What we have seen is that, looking at the cyber lining of COVID-19, is that we're seeing more uh, institutions and more foundations putting emphasis on equity. The fear is that this, this pass will pass in the next months or years. But the NCI and the National Cancer Institute is requiring that you know, requiring an allocated funds for interventions for health disparities. A lot of the industry of pharmaceutical companies, collaborators are also allocated money to fund interventions. Um, because I think it's time for interventions. The disparities have been all well documented for the last 20 years. But I don't have one specific, but I have seen more promising interventions uh, over the last year or so. Oh, thank you so much, um, Dr. Duma. That's excellent. Thank you so much. Um, um, excellent. Um, and um, another question for Dr. 
um, Shum, is everyone eligible for precision medicine? How does that improve treatment in diverse populations? Yes, uh, so thank you for that question. So to, um, in many aspects, yes, everyone does um, benefit from precision medicine. Um, as I mentioned in my portion, um, testing for PDL1 um, at the very least should be done for all non-small cell lung cancers. Um, and again, it's really just about um, doing further testing on, on one's tumor to find out if they do qualify for any specific treatments that are tailored to the findings from that uh, testing. Um, if you don't look for it, then you, then you don't know about it. And so that's why um, definitely in this day and age, um, you know, lung cancer is not just one disease. We think of it as many different uh, diseases because of all the different subtypes, um, mutations, and other characteristics of the tumor that we are learning more and more about, and that changes the way that we approach it. Excellent. Thank you so much. And um, excellent. And for Dr. Um, Palos, um, how can I make sure my, doc my, my father and doctors are communicating? My dad does not speak English. Oh, that's an excellent question. Uh, now, the majority of healthcare organizations have, in, have uh, translators available. So that's one thing that if you don't feel your father feels comfortable asking, that you can call and try to set that up with either, uh, if it's a private uh, oncologist clinic, to speak to the office staff and let them know. Maybe uh, they can help with that. Um, or to even call, some of the hospitals have translator departments or offices where they call language services, and you can uh, contact them. The thing is, is that it's very hard to get the translator in at, you know, the exact time perhaps that your father's appointment may be there. So there's some other services that you can call. Um, I believe it's um, AT&T that has a language line that you can use, um, and they'll be able to get somebody on, on the spot to help with the translation. It's very, very difficult. So when you know that the appointment is going to be scheduled, it would be helpful to contact folks ahead of time, the, the office staff or the clinic staff, and then find out if you can get the interpreter services there. Um, as we become more diverse in our uh, nation, in our healthcare settings, it's more and more challenging to find translators that speak every language. So this is something that um, is, a, like I said, it's a challenge for all of our healthcare team as well as for the patients and their families. And I'd be happy to hear from our other um, panelists to see if perhaps they may have some other ideas on that. So uh, let me just add a little bit. It depends on the institution, but, you, but it's a great question to ask when you set up an appointment. So, for instance, at our hospital, uh, not only do we have um, uh, some translators for many languages on site, but we also have uh, telephone service which uh, often can instantly be available for over 100 different languages. So we uh, can find a translator, at least by telephone, usually right away here in the New York area uh, to communicate. And uh, we have uh, phones with uh, two um, handsets uh, to make it easy. So in general, that has solved a lot of the problems that were just raised. But it's a great question to ask uh, before you go in. And again, as Dr. Duma had also said, this can be a barrier and we need to eliminate this barrier. 
And also many institutions have staff who actually may be speaking your language. So if you let them know ahead of time the language that you require, there may be a staff person who actually is quite um, is, is multilingual and would be able to um, address your, your questions as well. So that's another option as well. Um, that was an excellent question. Um, and this will be the last question um, for Dr. Growler. I do not live near a big medical center. How can I make sure I am still receiving the best possible care for my lung cancer? Okay. Well, uh, very fortunately, um, uh, uh, if you're in the United States, even though you're not near a major cancer center, there are good places for cancer care uh, that are available in many uh, different uh, areas or states. You could call a um, large medical center in your uh, state uh, and ask them who they advise and uh, in that area and ask them uh, if they feel that uh, you will be able to get the latest and most interesting and most important care for you as well as genetic testing, et cetera. However, I must say that um, in most regions, uh, there are uh, uh, excellent thoracic surgeons, radiation oncology facilities, and medical oncologists uh, within uh, one to two hours for uh, many people with a few with only a few exceptions that probably covers over ninety five percent of the population in the lower forty eight states excellent thank you thank you and um I think also for those of you who are looking for centers um, um also very close to you um you We'll send you information about how to access those centers because there are um, um, there are um, organizations that will actually give you that information so you'll be able to get to a treatment center close to where you live. For some people, um, that's really important, I realize, and, and where you can get excellent care. So thank you. Um, I have to say this has been an extraordinary call. I want to thank all of our speakers. who have just been really phenomenal. Um, I have to say, and I want to thank all of our participants who asked such great questions. So this has been really an amazing call. But I do know that there are many more of you in queue with questions, so I do want to address that right away. Um, so for those of you who um, have a question and um, didn't get to um, ask your question, um, and for those of you who thought of a question but didn't get to ask it or still have another question, um, we do suggest that you, first of all, whether you asked a question or didn't ask a question, we take it, take it back to your healthcare team and, um, and take what you've learned from today's program back to your healthcare team and, and, and ask the question again of them. Um, with the information that you've gained from today in terms of how it applies best to you in your particular situation. Um, we also encourage you to use the Longevity Foundation's resources. It's a lung cancer-specific organization, as well as the cancer care um, staff to assist you with questions that you still have that you may have concerns about. Um, most importantly, as we conclude the program today, I would not want any one of you to feel you're alone in coping with lung cancer, with access to care. Um, we want you to now know that, you, that there are many organizations and your healthcare team, which consists of many different disciplines um, to really help you to, um, to navigate the best care for you. Um, and um, 
we recognize that, um, and I think as Dr. Grala pointed out, with COVID, it, this has highlighted a lot of issues of really access to care and, and, and fairness of care and equity of care. And so um, those, are, those are big issues that, that are being addressed across the board in all medical centers. Um, and I think that um, you're going to be seeing um, uh, more and more um, efforts made to, to act to, to create uh, care that's closer to where you live and, and, and so that you can get care that you need um, from staff who are um, really very concerned about your access to care. So I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.